Happy Friday, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Carrie Coppernall-Jacobs with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Alicia Priest, president of the OEA. Fried Okra is a weekly podcast where we get together to talk about public education issues in Oklahoma. We hope you'll join us every Friday. Well, this morning we are joined by Ivy Riggs, one of our legislative and political organizers. Good morning, Ivy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, you know, the legislative session started, so we're all great. (laughs) Awesome. Fantastic. (laughs) So uh, session kicked off Monday with State of the State. Can you kind of, what did the governor say about education? He... He mostly focused on in-person learning. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's been tweeting a lot about that. This mm-hmm. wasn't a surprise. Uh, we were pleasantly surprised with the budget he put out before the state of the state where he didn't call for cuts. Yeah, uh, he is going to fund uh, insurance cost increases for for school employees. So that was a that was a good oh, great. that was a good thing. Um, but the but the it's frustrating the push for in-person learning no matter what when vaccines aren't available for our educators yet. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that they're feeling beat up already. Um, you know, I've talked to lots of lots of our educators lately and the, you know, the constant quarantines back and forth, not having classes, covering classes, no subs, yeah. you know, those types of things. Um, the the idea that as the leader of our state, he knows exactly where we are in the vaccine mm-hmm. schedule mm-hmm. and to say that that we are not concerned with the health and safety of our kids and the education of our kids uh, and to be concerned with our own health is yeah. is somehow um, not caring about those kids. Right. That's a, that's a bit of a slap in the face when, when teachers are working, uh, all, all education employees are working harder than they ever have this year. I noticed, uh, I picked up on that he had thanked, you know, everyone in their dog and except educators but he thanked he thanked the districts that are learning in person yeah which i thought was so pointed as if educators and everybody who's doing things virtually aren't working absolutely working their tails off and and he praised broken arrow and um another school maybe bixby for being in person and just last week they had to go out of in person to virtual because of the high levels of of community spread and and all through their districts so well that's how out of touch i believe if you're not in education if you are not living this life you have no idea how hard administrators superintendents school employees are working to try to make it as cohesive for kids as possible that is what we do right This this is what we do for a living and so um you know it's one thing to know you're doing the best you can, mm-hmm. but on the biggest stage in our state, when the leader of our state says we're not, right, that's hard. It is, and he and he, and he constantly says misinformation about Tulsa Public Schools not having been in in school for three hundred and something days. Well, there haven't even been three hundred and something days. I mean, he's you counting know. the summer. He's counting <laughs> weekends, weekends, holidays. Come on. Well, I mean, I mean, that's for effect, right? We there's facts and there's not facts for sure. And and, you, and school's like been happening. To, yeah, school's and, and happening. school has been happening. And Tulsa is not the only school that has been out. Not only that, they have a back in plan, right? Whereas a district in Oklahoma City uh, metro area has not been in school, has no and has no back-to-school plan, and that district is not being pointed right. out as well. But Superintendent Deb, Deb Gist came back and 
she had a great response. Called him a bully. and it's a very strong response. Indeed. Yeah. Um, um, he mentioned a couple of policy points about uh, transfers and remind me. Oh, and the funding formula. Yeah. So, so those are, those are big priorities for a lot of legislators. And so right now we in, uh, in our legislative department are having some conversations with legislators. I had a really good one last night with Mark McBride, who's the appropriations chair in the Mm -hmm. education on the education committee in the house. Uh, More of those are to come this week. Um, you know, open transfer has some room for improvement, I think. Sure. There's a small window of open transfer where a parent can say, I'd like my kid to go to this other district. Mm-hmm. I can transport them and they get to go. Yeah. No questions asked as long as there's capacity in that district. Right. Uh, I think the criticism that we would have or the concerns that we would have for the bills that are out there right now for the language we've seen, we know changes are happening. So I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get too worked up about it yet, mm-hmm. but, um, some of these want as a state to set capacity for your district. And we have real big issues with that. Not yeah. only is it is yeah. it a violation of local control, it's kind of state overreach, but it's not accurate. I mean, in, yeah. in practice, as soon as that report would be filed, those numbers, especially in a high mobility district, those sure. numbers would no longer be accurate. We talked yesterday about how how districts specialize in certain things. Maybe they have a higher number of students with special needs, particular mm-hmm. special needs, sure. and they need to keep those class sizes down. Sure. Uh, students with uh, that are English language learners have mm-hmm. to, I mean, in order to teach them effectively, you need to keep those numbers down. Mm-hmm. And so it's no one else's job, in our opinion, to tell us as a district what our capacity should be or has to be. You know, when I've been thinking about this, you know, the the classroom that I taught in in Putnam City um, was sort of this wonky sort of maybe used to be two classrooms and now it's kind of one biggish sort of classroom. If you had just done square footage of my room, I would have had twice as many kids. But there's no way that physically I could have accommodated that many because of the equipment needs of my classes. I mean, for anybody to nobody's going to know that except for the administrator and the teacher for sure i mean if if you at at the state level said oh well here's a classroom this many kids can fit in there you have no idea unless you're there one one year that i taught we had a a child uh i taught middle school Mm -hmm. god bless you at a pretty low mobility school Mm -hmm. and so theoretically this concept would fit and, and we're not even talking about square footage capacity. We're mm-hmm. talking about, you yeah. know, yeah. somebody saying you should have 23 kids in a fourth grade class right. or whatever, whatever right. the case may be. So this was a... That would be a dream for please, most wouldn't it be? Please fund it accordingly. Exactly. Thank you. Exactly. And if you look at like pre-K laws specifically, right. you know, there is a there are federal laws because it's attached to funding that uh, ratio has to be 10 to 1. Right. So if you say you have to take three more kids, are you going to pay for the aid? Right. But then that district is right. legally uh, required to hire right. to accommodate anything over the 20 mark or what, you know, there's just a lot of reasons why it's not okay. But for two years, we had a class that had a full-time teacher and a full-time aide for one student oh my because gosh. of the extreme special needs and the yeah. violence and lots yeah, of other yeah. things for this one student. Yeah. And because of, of, of literal capacity, yeah. they were in a workroom. Um, wow, you know, with things taped off and yeah, locked cabinets, right. so he couldn't hurt himself. You know, that has to be a local decision, right? And so, you know, we we always think worst case scenario when we see sure. these bills. We always sure. think, oh my goodness, it can't work for this myriad of reasons, right? And you know, I, I get where legislators are hearing from parents. 
Right. I get where legislators yeah. are hearing from constituents where they're like, I feel like I don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. So we want to we want to work with them to find some common ground that is OK for schools mm-hmm. and is and is good for parents and kids as well. Uh, obviously, that's what's important to us and what we do. So talk about the formula funding conversation. <clears throat> yeah. So right now, uh, schools are funded on a three-year average right. of their per-pupil funding. And the reason for that is so they can plan, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. If if you funded schools, you know, we, we get funding based on our enrollment in the spring when school ends. That's what your July 1 funding starts as. And then in, the, in January, December to January, you get your mid-year adjustment. Right. Most schools will see a little bit of a cut depending on if you're growing or shrinking. Right. Um, you know, and so you kind of plan for that, some some little gray area. Mm-hmm. But um, but imagine if it wasn't a three-year average. Right. Imagine if it was truly those numbers, and especially this year when when, when enrollment is down because of COVID, right. because right. of a pandemic. And so we know for the next several years, those numbers are going to be a bit wonky anyway. And right. at least superintendents and school boards have the freedom have have the cushion of the three year average. Mm-hmm. If you're already looking at a at a at a at a landlocked district, at a shrinking district like yeah. some of our urban districts are, mm-hmm. and you shrink that to a single uh, a single year, I don't know how a superintendent would know how to staff a school. You wouldn't. I, you you would have to uh, riff or or fire or not rehire and not have adequate staffing. Because you don't know if you can pay them or not, and then say say some oh of these God. virtual students come back, then what? You, you right? You don't have the money to hire teachers to teach the children. So right. your class size goes up to fifty. Exactly. Or, I, mean, I mean, it is. How is that good for kids? Absolutely, it is fraught with uh, scariness. If but but again, for folks that don't live in this world, the governor made it sound like we are basically stealing from the state with uh, fake students. And that is incredibly inaccurate and unfair. Again, it's him taking pieces of a story and deciding that this is the only part that I want to tell, even though the story is 100 pages long. Right. Right. And and I uh, found the term ghost students was fascinating to me. And And I will say that you know, you talk about like ghost employees, ghost students, like that implies absolute wrongdoing. It implies, um, you know, doing things on purpose to defraud funding, you know, what, however that looks. And I, and that is not what this, that's not what the funding formula does. It allows districts to grow and shrink appropriately and not have massive cuts or have to do a huge hiring after October 1. I mean, it's just, it is not, that's, well, I, and, and I take issue with that term. For and it's sure, not the districts do. that are deciding this. This is in state statute. Right. For sure. For sure. So those conversations are also happening. We are really trying to educate legislators on the school funding formula. I will say a positive is there are more educators in the legislature true. than ever before. Go team. So thankfully, there are experts there. That doesn't mean people are listening to them. Sure. But that's that's uh, that's a good there's a base knowledge right. level. Right. Even yeah. so, so folks that want to know have people right there, their colleagues yeah. to go to to ask. Uh, on both sides of the aisle. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Dwayne Pemberton in the Senate is the uh, Senate 
subcommittee on education appropriate or yeah appropriations chair, former superintendent, mm-hmm. you know, longtime educator, mm-hmm. uh, can can explain that funding formula so so well, and so every senator has access to his knowledge, yep. and so that's a that's a gift that we haven't always had, so it's nice. Um, so there are other this time of year. There's also um, I mean thousands of bills, um, good ideas. Less than good ideas. Um, let's really talk- less than good ideas. <laughs> Substandard. Um, let's talk about, uh, there's a, a pension bill that maybe was going to come up next week. Now is maybe not. Nobody really knows. Um, talk to us about Senate Bill 891. Yeah. Uh, Senate Bill 891 is not a new idea. It's a... Uh, but it's a bad one. Kind of a bad, <laughs> it is a bad, kind of a bad penny that just keeps coming back, right? So it would change for new school employees only. So it's only targeting teacher retirement system, not any other public retirement system in our state, which uh, is another bad penny. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, when things are hard and expensive, uh, they want a silver bullet easy solution. Yeah. And that's, a, that's, a, that's frustrating. There, there's not a silver bullet easy solution. It's big and it's complicated. And it's a promise that our state made a long time ago, and we're going to fight for them to keep that promise. This would um, change, basically change the pension system uh, for new employees starting in the year 2022. The problem with that is um, the, the, what those new employees pay in is what funds the current system. Okay, so... Backtrack. Change it how? Right now, we have a defined benefit system, which means if you complete all retirement requirements, and depending on when you started, those are all different, so I will not bore you with that. Uh, It's fairly complicated. Um, If you complete all requirements based on when you started teaching, then you have a defined benefit. You know, it's a certain percentage of your three highest years of what Mm -hmm. you earned, for the rest of your life. Your pension. Your pension for the rest of your life. And that's, you know, as a public servant, we knew we were not going to get rich right. doing this <laughs> doing this job. And the trade-off is you were, are somewhat taken care of in retirement. These yeah. are not rich, rich retirements. The average right. the average retirement of a, of a teacher retirement system employee, and that's, you know, superintendents down to support employees, sure. is $1,600 a month. Oh, get crazy. Right? So <laughs> so we're not talking about a... a, a we're not we're not cruising, right? <laughs> right, right. You we're know. not living high on the hog. Exactly. We're 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 paying for medicine, but also you know. but also we're supplementing Social Security. You know those are things. Yeah, but that, also being able to afford to live. Absolutely, right. as a senior, it's something we can plan for. Yes, this would switch it to a four hundred one k style system. Okay, they they describe that as a defined contribution. Okay, so it's based on what you can pay in. The problem with that is, I mean, lots of problems with that. Number one. Um, how would the current system, because they're, they're going to, you know, only start it with new hires starting in 2022. Mm-hmm. So everyone in the current system stays in the current system, which is nice, except for what's going to continue to fund that current system. Right. So that's, that's problem number one. The second one is states that have done this have already switched back, paying millions of dollars in penalties, knowing that their retirees would retire in absolute poverty and it would cost the state more money in in welfare lots of welfare benefits yeah uh because because they can't live right school employees educators do not make enough to put enough into a 401k right to retire on right um you know you if you figure the percentages in this bill would get you 
forty to sixty thousand dollars. What to retire on? What? So how long? Oh my word! I'm no math whiz. Oh my but word! But I won't. I won't give you an example even, of math. Even, <laughs> but that's not going to last long. Even yeah. if you have a, a your, even if you don't have a mortgage. Oh my word! I just for sure. I can't. So it's good. I'm wearing a mask right now because I'm appalled. <laughs> I'm making an appalled face. That's insane. So we we hate it for a lot of reasons. Uh, we do know Tom Spencer, the executive director of the Teacher Retirement System, says this will be incredibly detrimental. He's not one to use strong words, but he has used very strong words yeah. for this to our current system. Yeah. Not to mention philosophically what it would do to our those sure. folks that actually sure. retire. Um, not to mention recruitment. For sure. The teacher pipeline will just crumble so, more than it already is. Right. So I know it's scary that I just did some ciphering, oh, but goodness. I did use a calculator. Thank God. So I took the highest number, 60000 So if you had 60000 in a 401k and, um, That's crazy. and you retired for 36 months that would be uh $1,666 a month cool which so, is basically what they're getting now right mm -hmm. so so three years so you would be able to live for three right. years and and critics will say you can put however much you want oh, into retirement yes but with my paycheck that i also need for food right and, and electricity oh, so man. so this is another just oh kind of a backward way we look at education we, we, we think of it as a primarily female uh -huh. job, and then there's a breadwinner in the household as well. And you know what? And that's offensive. And, and the, this would never be proposed for first responders. No, no one would dare propose this for firefighters, for our police officers. They would not dare. But with teachers, predominantly female, and it is absolutely seen as, oh, well. Well, there's a there's a man taking care of them, so they can put most of their money in a 401k, yeah. and so it'll be fine. Sure. So so there are, for, for every reason we hate it, there are arguments on the other side. Sure. Um, okay. That's not going to make us not hate it. No. <laughs> um, okay. Well, and we've got a, a whole big line of voucher bills oh my in, all, in all the forms. I, I'm starting my ninth session at as an OEA employee. And we have never, in the nine years I've been here, seen this many voucher bills in a single year. Uh, some of the same same players uh, that that have brought them in years past, but usually it's one or two. Yeah. Uh, and this year, it's it's a lot, and it's everything from anyone uh, that that has a low income household. If your parents are in the military or have ever been in the military, oh. if you're homeless, if you're scared you might get sick at school from COVID or anything else. <laughs> if you have one parent that's incarcerated. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, lots of reasons this is bad. Um, I'll list just a couple. Um, this takes away from, from the money that goes to educate well over 90% of our kids in our state. Um, the voucher that you would get for any of these reasons uh, doesn't come close to actually paying for private school. Yeah. And we know... Um, we heard from Scott DeMorrow in, in Ohio last year. Yep. When you look at who's actually getting those scholarships or those vouchers, it's not poor kids. Right. It's not kids trapped in these horrible, horrible schools. It's wealthy folks, and it's just subsidizing. Yes. They're already sending their kids to private schools. Yes. We're, yes. Not, we're not helping anybody but, but folks who don't actually need help. So, so let's keep the money in our schools. 
and actually help kids. Yeah. And that's what we're already doing. And who knows who knows the academic performance of the private schools that they're going to? Oh, you know, if you listen to him last week, the performance is, is substandard. Uh, very much, very much. Well, great. Thank you for this update, <laughs> Ivy. That's all terrible. <laughs> There's a lot to I keep. I started with the governor doesn't want to cut the budget. Thank Come you. On. That's right, that's right. That's all I got. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for keeping track of everything and staying calm. Uh, We appreciate it very much. Yes. Your your ability to uh, talk to the masses at the legislature and um, and stay sane uh, is is impressive. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Happy to keep folks informed. That's uh, that's that's our goal. Now we're joined by Clark Fraley, a friend of the podcast, and uh, Reverend, uh, we are so glad that you are back. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, So talk to us now. You're the Executive Director of Pastors for Oklahoma Kids, um, a non-denominational coalition. Um, We want to talk to you about some, some different issues, but before we get into it, for folks who might not have heard you in the past, can you explain um, what Pastors for Oklahoma Kids is? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I really, I, I talk about it all the time as a God thing. Uh, back in 2016, uh, upon the failure of a state question mm-hmm. where our, our legislators were not doing their job and adequately funding our public schools, mm-hmm. and so there was uh, an attempt to have a state question uh, that would have provided a, a one-cent tax that would have gone to public ed. It failed, mm-hmm. and I was heartbroken over that because I had seen our local schools needing funding in the last several years and thought that would have been an answer. I know it wasn't perfect, but uh, then I, when I looked into it and I saw some of the groups that, you know, had funded against it uh, to to defeat it. It just really broke my heart that these were groups that, you know, I trusted in Oklahoma and I thought, you know, something really weird is going on here. Yeah. And so I made a call to down to Texas. They had a group of pastors that had been together for, I think, four years mm-hmm. uh, advocating for public schools. And I just found their website just one late night, just kind of like frustrated with all of it and uh, reached out. And the, the guy emailed me back immediately late at night and said, you're not going to believe this, but two other pastors from Oklahoma contacted me today. Oh, my and gosh. I'd like to, I didn't I'd know like to have an audio conference with you three guys tomorrow morning. That's amazing. So I, I drove down to Norman <laughs> and we had uh, three pastors that came together and we all co-founded it. Pastor from Tuttle, Norman and Edmund. Um uh, Oklahomans, we, we founded this group uh, to advocate. And I mean, honestly, it's been a learning curve because <laughs> I was completely outside of ever advocating for anything. Like I just, uh, I was a very, you know, uh, not a good voter, not a good interest in politics. Don't, don't, still don't really care about politics, but uh, seeing the effects on our children really just broke yeah. me. And so uh, we've been blessed because you know, we have brought together people from such diverse denominations. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anything like it. Like there's no cause in the state of Oklahoma that has more diverse voices from denominations. Like usually, you know, even in your own church, you can't agree on what color the carpet should be. So (laughs) much less, you know, agreeing (laughs) on a political thing. What's seen as political. That's what's funny. I mean, it's seen as political, but I'm like, you know what? I, I do not care what letter is after your name, politician. Support our kids in public yep. schools, yep. and we're going to be best friends. Uh, attack our kids and our teachers in public schools, 
and we're going to have words because, you know, the crazy stuff that was being said back in 2015 and 16 yeah. about our teachers yep. was just, you know, it was uh, some of it was sacrilegious. And it still is when they attack our schools because we have so many people that are doing good work in our schools and we just couldn't handle it anymore. So that was, that's kind of where we came from. So you, uh, you had an op-ed um, in the Oklahoman this week that was, I loved it. I thought it was exceptional about why we should improve all our schools, work on all our schools together. Um, and one of the things that I loved was that you said that, um, the excellent public school infrastructure, which we have been building together since 1907. I just love that. We have been doing that together. Um, what made, what was the precipice for this? What made you feel like you needed to um, write this and why right now? I think, um, I think just seeing all of the positive press for vouchers in our state right now mm -hmm. it seemed very one-sided yeah and i i think sometimes you know you get it's it's funny because you get these um folks that express a certain narrative right and so mm -hmm. they talk about zip codes all the time yeah and you know as i dug into it i i mean that's where i was at i was like last week i down i went to the osde website and downloaded a, a spreadsheet of private schools and zip codes and then manually entered into the same spreadsheet ones that weren't on there because I really wanted to get a sense of what does this mean when we say, you know, your school option shouldn't be limited by zip right. code. And as it came to find out, only 7% of the zip codes in the state of Oklahoma even have a private school. Oh, my word. I did not know that. This So 93% of the state, I put the, I put the data into a, a free mapping uh, software online just because I wanted to visualize it. And it's just the most sparse thing you're looking at in the world. Yeah. So I'm like, what are we talking about here? Right. We're talking right. about the exact thing that the first state superintendent wrote about in 1908 in his first report to the legislature about the importance of public education to rural schools. Yep. Because at that time, the only people getting educated in the state of Oklahoma were people with money in urban settings. Right, right. So what we're trying to do with vouchers is take ourselves back over 120 years and go back before 1907. We're trying to set the clock back to a time when only the wealthy got to have their kids educated. I mean, we're talking before my grandpa, who only went through eighth grade. We're talking like they didn't have anything yeah. in those communities. Yeah. Uh, there would have been a private one-room school, but very few children actually go to that. Most of them would have just been in the fields. And so you are not educating those kids. And I mean, he was, his words are harsh to a state. Uh, um, and so I, I just think we need to revisit that concept and think about what we're doing to our state when we do vouchers. And I think it's this misconception. I honestly do. Even looking at how the governor has distributed that CARES money that he had mm -hmm. discretion over, mm -hmm. $10 million to private schools and what was it, $30 million to public schools, I think. And so when I think about that, I'm like, okay, wait a minute here. Someone doesn't understand that private schools only serve like 5% of our kids and public schools are serving 90% of our children. Yeah. Like that doesn't even make sense, that kind of distribution. But I think that might be a misconception in people's minds that our private schools are vast and they're not. Mm -hmm. uh, our public schools serve every zip code and transport to every zip code in this right. state. So 
there, there's a, just a big difference um, as, as we think about that. So that kind of started my thought process on that op-ed. And it's just, it fits exactly with what we are and who we are, because we have from the beginning seen the privatization uh, of public education movement as this attempt to redistribute public education resources. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for us, we're like, I mean, our big thing we say all the time is, okay, you have an infrastructure of public schools. Like we said, we've been building this together. This is a community project. This is not just the state of Oklahoma's project. Right. These are local communities right. that have been building these schools and investing. And um, Reverend Cameron, who was the first state school superintendent, he envisioned our schools, our local public schools, as being community centers where the whole community would be blessed by that. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you from growing up in a tiny A school district, that was exactly yes. right. And when it's we, still true. When we That's got money true. to build. Do what? That's still true for a yeah. lot of our communities. Yeah. That is absolutely spot on. Yeah. When we got when we got money to build a, a library for the high school and then it became the whole school's library, it opened up on the weekends and evenings. In my little oh, town wow. of 500 people, we didn't have a public library. Yeah. This was the library. And wow. so... Uh, you know, it just became, I mean, people would play up on the, the baseball fields yep. uh, when the yep. games weren't going on. So, I mean, the on a Friday night, basketball was the only thing. I, I mm -hmm. did not play high school basketball, but we were all up there because that was the thing to do. And it brought out a whole community. So, and it's a source of pride in a lot of communities. Mm -hmm. So the more that we mm -hmm. trample on that legacy in Oklahoma, I, I think the, the more dishonor we do. Now, so talk about why is why vouchers like why is this something that pastors for kids is interested in why why put a religious lens on that issue sure yeah well i mean you know i uh, my whole background is is and so i can't speak for a lot of different faiths but mm -hmm. i uh i of course interact now with lots of different denominations it's been really good for me to get outside of my yeah. little bubble of, yeah. of baptist boy uh, I, I grew up Baptist, uh, came into the church at about 14 at Falls Creek. Uh, I had a call to ministry when I was 18. And so I went to OBU here in uh -huh. Oklahoma, became, went to Southwestern Baptist in Fort Worth, became a Baptist pastor. That's what I've done for 21 years. Mm -hmm. So um, my kind of uh, understanding of Baptist history is that we were staunchly uh, for the separation of church and state that we were, we saw the dangers associated with that because of our own history and because of persecution of state religion. And so, you know, when we come to this country, we want to make sure that we have religious liberty. We have the ability to worship how we see fit. So I would say our group is strongly in defense of religious liberty and strongly in defense of a, 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 a solid wall of separation of church and state. Which I think is interesting because when we started, people got the, the misconception because of our name, you know, that we were wanting to put pastors in schools or oh. something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think everybody was worried about us because we got we got some pretty negative uh, social media at first. But you know, I mean, it's 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 to me, it's clear in the scriptures that this is a thing. The separation of church and state is something mm -hmm. that is got to be there. You don't want to integrate with those things, and it can be as simple as. You know, uh, Jesus teaching, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and God the things that are God's. Or when he teaches, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, I, I think that's pretty clear. The um, biggest issue for us then in looking at the schooling issue is how do you distinguish 
the difference between a private school operation and a church operation. And, and, and we would mm-hmm. say, I think, uh, because of our focus on religious liberty, that a religious school should be exempt from the government um, overreach and insight into those things. Uh, they, they, they should be allowed to operate as freely as possible. Obviously, you got to have like fire codes and stuff. But like as far as curriculum and all that, OK, right, yeah. yeah, I would say whatever. And, and for them to have the freedom to allow who they want in and out. The sticky problem becomes, I don't want to pay for that from taxpayer dollars. And no one should be compelled to pay for that that doesn't have those exact beliefs. Mm-hmm. A private school should receive private funds. A public school should receive public funds. Like, this is not difficult. This is not something we have to get into and, you know, dissect. It's it's pretty black and white for us. So um, I, I think that becomes the real big issue is when we start blurring that line. Yeah. Okay. How does this not just become a state church? If, if you know, there right. was research uh, we had just read about from the let's see, this National National Bureau of Economic Research did some research into this and found out that uh, <laughs> there's a couple of really interesting things. But of course, they found out that you know, vast majority of private schools have some religious affiliation, mm-hmm. and as you dig into it, voucher expansion in some of those places caused the voucher state money to actually be more of the church's budget than the giving, than the offering. Wow. And so now you've got a situation where the church, I mean, and they're housed in the same building and so many of these operations. So what is this? Who's paying the bills? If it's not the people of the church, but it's the, you know, a church that would have gone out of business, it would have shut down, but now they're staying afloat by government funds alone. What is, you know, that's just, that's just wrong. Everybody knows that's wrong. You know, and uh, and really, we if if we have those people who truly believe in small government, then um, then the voucher program giving to private schools is um, is really increasing government overreach, and um, and making some churches dependent on this government subsidy. And once you go on that government subsidy, you're never going to give that up, and you're going to fight. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're going to fight so hard for that. You're going to, you're going to, you're, and that's the thing people have to realize when you go on that government money, you're not going to stand for the right thing anymore. You're going to fight for that money because you know what it means if you don't get that government kickback anymore. And uh, unfortunately, I think that's the situation we're in. I, I can't have serious conversations with people that are, you know, uh, receiving those government funds. I just have to be like, look, you know, because because there is a serious theological issue here. This is not something that is lightly uh, considered by us. This is a deep theological problem. It's why we have partners even at the national level um, through the Baptist Joint Committee in, in Washington, D.C. that fight this on the national level, because this is a serious infraction of this idea of church and state separation. And it's not something we've just made up. This is something we've been fighting for for a long time. This is something that's part of what, how we understand church works, that we don't want the government to be responsible. Because once that happens, then come all the strings attached with that. And then come, and, and that's the thing. What are you going to do at that point, school? What are you going to do at that point, small Christian private school, when the government eventually says, oh, well, now we're going to attach new strings. Are you going to tell, you know, well, we got to close down the church and the school because we're not going to take that money? Of course not. They're going to bend and flex to do whatever they can to keep that. And see, that income and that's my and that, and that's my question. And and so, uh, full disclosure, my kids go to public schools, like obviously. But 
you know, I would think that for religious schools, what what you as a family are opting in for is that religious education, you know, and which for some families, that is very important to them and, you know, do it to it. And, but when you start, you know, I, I just wonder about like the things that you are opting into as a family. Um, if you start taking public money, you know, they're, they're, they're the, the strings that you described does that sort of undo the whole reason that you chose religious education in the first place? Like, I'm not saying religious education is wrong. I'm saying that you're, you're, you're choosing, you're choosing that for a reason, you know, and then to have the government be a part of that seems like it's sort of erasing some of those uh, religious freedoms that you were wanting to exercise in the first place. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. I just, I just, I think it's a, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating back and forth to me. The, the well, and I think that you know, issue. I think you it's unfortunate because that you even have to give the disclaimer you just gave because people that are do that are sending their children to private school should automatically understand that what you're saying is exactly right and that you're not attacking a private Christian school. This is not in it, this is not in any way negative against Christian education. Right, this right. is saying, how is this even Christian education anymore if it becomes half funded by the state like that 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 denies the whole idea of what this was in the first place and you know homeschooling families that i have known have pushed back on government funding for a long time for this exact reason Mm. i've met christian homeschoolers that say we don't want curriculum from the state we don't want resources from the state we don't want a voucher to go to a field trip somewhere from the state like this is our thing and it's our thing because we are in control of it and we control the finance and we control the curriculum. Yeah. As soon as you start opening that up, how is, I mean, I, at, at some point you're like, well, how is this any different than a, uh, a local public school? Like yeah. you're just taking money through a different route, but it's the same funding source. So to me, that's uh, uh, a big issue. I would say uh, if I could, just one more thing. Yeah. The, uh, the, one of the kind of overriding issues is the, uh, and I think this came out last week, which uh, just drove the point home. I was trying to make the point, but I have difficulty, I think, sometimes clearly getting the point out. But what happened in Owasso with the Christian school with the little eight-year-old girl? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it just broke me when I read the article uh, on foxnews.com. And the little, the first thing is the little girl is asking, crying, and saying, does God still love me? Man, if we don't, if that doesn't hit those of us in the faith community with a little bit of what are we doing here? And to know that taxpayer dollars paid for that, whatever you believe about that issue, this is an eight-year-old girl. I mean, the the comments, there's like a thousand of them on the Fox News article. And I love it because they're like, okay, this is, you know, the government can't tell you that they have to accept someone in the school. And I'm like, that's exactly right. That it is their religious right, if they want to do this, who agree with them or not, it is their right to exclude someone. But the problem is this is a school that takes Neo vouchers. And this is a school that applied for almost $2 million in PPP loans. So we are funding this. Now, I would argue that this is an eight-year-old girl. And many people commenting on this article also had the common sense to argue that, to say, this is an eight-year-old kid. Give me a break. The mom has a different belief, but you kick out the whole family? Yeah. You see, you can't do that kind of stuff in a public school because everyone is accepted. All means all. Yep. All the children of the state of Oklahoma, it's right there in our Constitution. It is a constitutional right. 
And it is the only thing, it is the only right guaranteed by the Constitution that is supposed to be funded by our state. Now, that becomes a big moment where all of a sudden you're going, where are my constitutional conservatives? Where are my constitutional people? Because mm. this is the state constitution, the document mm -hmm. that we raise our hands before the first day of session and swear to protect. And then <laughs> we're attacking it all unless session long. Unless it's inconvenient. <laughs> right. Right. So I just think that example, uh, man, that just hit me. I'm just like, you know what? This cannot, we cannot, you cannot force someone to be paying towards this kind of stuff in Oklahoma, yeah. whether voucher or neo voucher or whatever. We've got to divorce ourselves from that, from, from taxpayer money. And that's how it's private. And that's how you get to do those things. And I mean, that's, that's just, it's just ridiculous to me. So yes, on, on all of that, I, I mean, seriously, <laughs> my, my heart did break for that little girl. She's eight. Like she, she's eight years she's old. She's eight. She doesn't know what she's saying. So if um if our listeners uh wanted to know more about Oklahoma pastor pastors for Oklahoma kids and um wanted to introduce their pastors to pastors for Oklahoma kids, how would they do that? So uh, our website is pastorsforoklahomakids.com, and it is the easiest way to kind of understand. It's like the brochure, I guess, basically. Yeah. You can go there and look at our declaration. Our declaration is basically our founding document. If we had a constitution, that's what that, that's ours. And it's uh, it, it explains who we are and what we're doing. And we, anytime we take action, we go back to that document and allow it to guide us. And so it is what pastors sign on to. And so we don't want to take, we have a board, of course, of directors, but... Um, we basically filter everything through that. So uh, what I'm trying to say is we don't get on a lot of other topics. Like we are very mm -hmm. focused on kids in public schools. We try to make that clear Same. and obvious. Yeah. Right. Um, we, we work on that issue. As far as if you're interested in following our work, um, Facebook and Twitter are the two primary means that we get that information out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Fraley, for your advocacy, and thank you for sharing your time with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome to Alicia's Morning Announcements. Do, 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 do. First thing that I want to talk about, super excited about this, through a partnership with uh, OU and Landers Auto Group, uh, Landers Auto Group is doing a fantastic uh, promotional each month. Uh, Landers Auto Group, Sports Talk Radio, OU, and the OEA are selecting three classroom heroes who are nominated by a peer, parent, or student. Um, and they are uh, they and their school will share a thousand dollars and a basket of goodies. That's awesome. Uh, and be recognized at an OU Sooners game. So, I mean, what a fantastic way to share love for um for elementary educators it and, is for elementary educators and to troll the osu educators in your life <laughs> well i mean i'm just thinking of what you would do to Catherine. Bishop. just boomer sooner is all i have to say about that <laughs> i think it's awesome and, and and nominate your people nominate your people elementary educators you can nominate your your folks at okclassroomheroes.com and um, and let's see let's see who who gets in. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, 
we have a couple of uh, opportunities. We had a great town hall with Superintendent Hoffmeister this week, and she's doing one more with us on uh, Wednesday, February 10th at 5 o'clock. So you can come at 5, be done by 6, 6 Mm -hmm. 6.15, and still have time to go to church. Um, So it shouldn't mess up your schedule at all. Mm -hmm. And it is important because she really wants to know what educators are thinking. It's an opportunity to get to ask her questions. Yeah. So um, The highest elected education official in the state. I mean, she's, I mean, do it. She wants your... She wants your questions. She wants to hear from yeah. you. She wants to hear from you what's, you know, what's going on yeah. in your classroom and, and what needs do you have that the State Department could help out with. Yeah. So um, uh, we have organizing conference coming up February 26th and 27th. You can register for that. Registration is open and you can go to okea.org slash organizing conference 2021. It's free. Uh, dot Yeah. And, and it is free this year for OEA members. It right, is an right. OEA member only event. Uh, so if you want to join, you can also go to okea.org and hit the join now button if you are not a member yet. Uh, elections, we have, uh, you know, we are, we are governed by elected folks. I am, yep. I, you know, the president is elected in a statewide election. Same thing with vice president, NEA uh, director. And um, and then in our regions, we have regional elections for mm-hmm. board seats, for the OEA board, for um, representation at delegate assembly and NEA representative assembly. So there are open seats uh, and the filing is open now through February 19th. So if you're interested in that, go online, look at what's open and and what you are eligible for and uh, and and file. Because OEA is a democratic organization. It's not a uh, private side project. It's not a family business. It is run by members. I just want to under- by members for members. I want to underline it. We are all about public education and um, and making sure that our students have the public schools that they deserve. Yep. So um, and uh, and then lastly, you know, I had a couple of uh, emails and texts over the last couple of days mm-hmm. that um that were members asking hey is this o- is this oea sending out this text for me to go click on this link and write my legislator and um upon looking into it it was not something that we would support and i just want to assure our members and uh, listeners oea will never send out a text an email a communication of any kind without identifying, hey, this is the OEA sending mm-hmm. it out. And and the person who sends the text, their name is on it too. So it will say, yes. this is Carrie Jacobs with OEA. Yeah. Like, so that you for sure know. So if it's not, if it doesn't say who it's coming from, because it comes from real humans. Yeah. If it doesn't say who it's coming from and that we're with OEA, it's not us. It, my, my favorite thing when we are mm-hmm. uh, sending out text messages uh, I'll get a response. Okay, so whoever is saying that they're Alicia Priest, just <laughs> let I just want to let you guys know to let her know that uh, that I, you know OEA is doing such great work or OEA like, this, no, OEA that, and I'm like, it's really it's me. Actually, it's actually it, me. it is me. It is hello. <laughs> so I mean, it, it's important to 
communicate and hear from our members. And yes, and um, we do use those uh, apps and mm-hmm. emails and and different things. And it really is us when we contact you, and we will always let you know yep. that it's us, who it is, and that we're OEA every time. And if somebody doesn't tell you who it is, then you should suspect shenanigans. Always. What are you up to, and how did you get my name? Yep. Well. We had a lot of we had a lot of good conversation today. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about. The beginning of session feels like an avalanche of you know everything. Everything happening right now. So um there's a lot to it's a lot to dig through and a lot to uh you know take blood pressure medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yes and that. We want to say thanks to Ivy Riggs of our legislative team and Clark Fraley of Pastors for Oklahoma Kids for joining us today. And thank you for listening to Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Carrie Coppernall Jacobs with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Alicia Priest with the OEA. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review Fried Okra on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at friedokrapodcast at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again next week. Until then... Keep fighting the good fight for public education.